Hello, everyone. We are here to study some Torah today, and we are going to jump right in with our Torah portion, Exodus 27, we're going to look at. If I can have someone offer to read these first two lines. You shall further instruct the Israelites to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling lamps regularly. Aaron and his sons shall set them up in the tent of meeting outside the curtain, which is over the ark of the pact, to burn from evening to morning before Yudhevavhe. It shall be a due from the Israelites for all time throughout the ages. Okay. What are we talking about? Oh, it is. Oil. <laughs> what are we talking about here? The eternal light. Okay. So if we are talking about <clears throat> the eternal light here, one of the first things that we see is you shall further instruct the Israelites. So that means on top of all the other things you've told them to bring your you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling the lamps regularly. And there's an interesting piece here. The rabbis automatically ask, why the purest, cleanest oil? Now, uh, when I was living in Israel, I had a teacher who made a pretty uh, profound impact, mainly just because of his like willingness to bluntly say something the way it is. So what do you think it means to have clear oil of beaten olives? What version of the press is the clear oil of a beaten olive? First, which is called the virgin press. Now, I say this because this is our first of many rabbinic tangents that we'll go down today. Uh, it's my high horse of the false marketing of olive oil. When you go to the grocery store and you want to get olive oil and you want the nicest stuff, what do you look for on the shelf? Cost. Extra virgin. Extra virgin olive oil. Now, now here is the problem. And the organic. first. Okay, organic, extra virgin. We'd like a nice cost. I think that's a good shopping list worth. We want to have the first press of oil. Now, the first press in ancient times was called the virgin press. My teacher likes to point out. Extra virgin is. And that is the point. It is (laughs) nothing. Extra virgin was a marketing ploy because guess what? You cannot be an extra virgin. It is a binary. It is the first time that you press the olives are the virgin press. There is nothing in this world that you can extra virgin. And so this became a marketing ploy of olive oil to separate itself saying we had a cleaner, better virgin press, but it couldn't be an extra virgin press. And somehow along the way, we got to this point where we accepted the phrase extra virgin olive oil, but it's not true. The first press of oil is the virgin press. It's the press that comes through clear. What happens is once that's done, they would scoop up everything. And by the way, this was done in a massive circular stone. They would scoop everything, kind of redistribute in a pile, press again. That second press would come through a little bit cloudier, but actually pretty good. Then they would sweep up now this like mulchy olive. They'd pile it again, press a third time, and that would come out pretty cloudy and a little bit dirty. And the way you'd know the difference is when you light the different oils, your first press probably lights with no what? No smoke because there is no like a actual substance in it. Your second press, a little bit of smoke. Your third press was very smoky. 
And it didn't mean that it wasn't still usable oil, but there was a big difference. And so I will never forget when my teacher said to a group of adults, you cannot be an extra virgin. And I was like, oh my God, that is so simple and straightforward. I'm not, I don't, I don't know how it got there, but olive oil is really inside this industry now calling it an extra virgin press. And it is nothing but marketing. So now let's go back into our Torah. So the rabbis are going to ask, and they're going to ask in a piece of Mishnah, Menachot 8.4, they're going to they're explain that it was necessary to kindle the menorah, which is, by the way, the predecessor to the, the Nehru Tamid, to kindle the menorah uh, in the tabernacle using only the highest quality olive oil taken from the olives that grew at the very top of the trees. And those were crushed and put into baskets so that the oil might collect into the vessels below. Why? Why is it so necessary to use such high-grade oil? Any guesses? Well, wasn't everything supposed to be perfect because it had to do with something sacred for God, like animals without blemish and things of that sort? Okay, that's a really good thought. I want to pin that thought, the idea that when we talk about sacred ritual, we need to always use the highest caliber. There is something to be said about it, but uh, I actually think we're going to inch into a conversation that's going to push back on that. So let's really look. Anyone else have an idea? And Melinda, you can just, you can just unmute and, and share. Uh, aren't there other sacred functions of smoke for communicating with God? So not having smoke in this fire makes it a separate thing. Ah, okay. A nice level of separation. Amy likes to, Rabbi Amy likes to teach that uh, the idea of Kiddush is actually partially, it's the separation that makes it so sacred. And by having distinct lines and separations in different form of ritual, we're actually able to elevate many pieces. That's nice. I like that. Any other one? Any other thoughts? I was just thinking in a very practical way, not anything else, not having a smoky fire would be an advantage in that closed space. Okay, so now we're on to the pure practical, which is it would be much harder to do the rest of the rituals if you were filling the tent with smoke. That's a really good point. And the rabbis of the Talmud are going to push on a few of these different points. The first thing is they explain that this mitzvah, entering into a discussion, they see it as a discussion of wealth, poverty, and the way that we honor God. And they shed light on the different value systems as well as our own. And that's a really interesting piece that we're going to kind of go down. Emmet. Um, also, if you are praying or observing Shabbat in, uh, when you're hiding, um, with a lot of anti-Semitism throughout history, smoky oil is, will probably give you away. Good point. Yeah. It's also really smart. So the rabbis, uh, consider the nature of oil in this tractate of Menachot 86b. Now we're going to jump around to a bunch of different pieces. So I'm not actually going to pull up the text because we're going to kind of flow through this by looking at little snippets, which that piece of, of Talmud is about the grain offering in the temple. So nearly all the grain offerings were made as a mixture of different flour and frankincense and oil. And the Talmud asks whether the oil used in that offering had to be the same high quality oil required for kindling the menorah. Now that would make sense based on what Bert was saying, that if we're going to do something that interacts with God, we probably have to elevate this experience. However, what do you think they respond? They respond, no. 
They say that the Minachot offering does not need to be made from such a high quality of oil. And their response was based on this very close reading of the very first ver- verse in our portion, the oil of beaten olives, and specifically for lighting, for all the different reasons you're saying, and not for other purposes. So therefore, the rabbis conclude that this kind of oil is required for a menorah, but it'd be optional when it came to grain offerings. So let's think about what the different uses of oils were. Taking a side step from Talmud and rabbis for a moment. That first oil was definitely used for really high-end consumption, for lighting of candle, and there were some who would use it for medicinal purposes. The second be, the second oh. uh, press was used for food for the most part, for, um, again, some medical type stuff, uh, kind of the... Le- nice smells and luxury pieces. And that third press was a utility press. It was used for whatever was left. It was used for loyal social economic groups. It was used for actually probably some of these sacrifices. It was used for things in which smoke wouldn't have been an issue if they lit it. And by the way, it still tastes good. All you're doing is pressing olive into your oil. It's not like this is some terrible uh, flavor profile. And so they had different tiers of what they were using the olive oil for, and it's why they pressed it three times. They could have thrown it away after the second one, but they, they had usage for that third press. And wouldn't the second and third pressing, and perhaps even the fourth, also be very nutritious because olives themselves are nutritious? This is, the, this is one of the reasons that it, I, it, there is, there is uh, scholastic thought that olives are actually one of the reasons that this region was able to to work um, because it was such a versatile product. Um, And by the way, is it an easy product? I don't even choose to eat olives sometimes because I'm annoyed by the pit. Like I can't even be bothered in a snacking situation at times to eat olives due to the like not convenient way. And yet this is what they were using for everything. So it was, it was labor, it was laborious, but it was a very helpful product. And did you know one other thing, Daniel, that the tree outside rabbi's office is an olive tree. Yeah. And that's where our wonderful Lee Sultan has been working so diligently to make that tree look beautiful and healthy again. That's fair. And I love that symbol. Do you know that if you're in our sanctuary and you open up the blind behind the, the bima and the blind behind that, you'd be able to see the olive tree from the sanctuary as well which I know some of you are nodding because you are definitely part of the design and or have heard that a hundred times, but it's a pretty awesome uh, kind of depth of thought that the building even has that kind of flow and continuity to it. Um, so why require oil of the highest regard for the menorah, but not for a sacrifice to God? That seems odd, right? I'm not saying like not for other things, but why would you require that oil for the menorah, which is going to be, in this communal space that celebrates God, but not for God. Going back to Bert, your thought that like, if it's about the sanctity of God, it needs to be that higher caliber. Why would they do that? Any thoughts before we hear from the rabbis? Yeah. Because it's a justice and equality issue. You don't want offerings to God to only be accessible to the wealthy. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. Rabbi Eiler Ezra explains that the reason is because such this oil is very expensive. That because it's so expensive the, and the Torah is sparing of the money of the Jewish people, 
these two things go against each other. And Rashi clarifies that the menorah did not actually require very much oil, and it was kindled only once a day, unlike grain offering, which we brought frequently to God, because grain offering was kind of this sustaining connection to God, unlike some of the other offerings that were like, oops, I did it again, or something else. This grain offering was something that we uh, use on a somewhat regular basis, like prayer. And so if grain offerings were often also brought as a lower socioeconomic alternative to the more expensive animal sacrifices. When I study with bar mitzvah students, bar and bat mitzvah students, we look at the fact that the text actually says, if you can't afford this animal sacrifice, bring the grain sacrifice. So if that was the alternative, and we also require this really high quality oil, it would completely defeat the purpose of having an accessible version of sacrifice. And it's for this reason too, that the rabbis actually permit lighting Shabbat candles using all sorts of oil. And this one's really interesting. It goes against some of your other thoughts about the tent, but also this menorah was a little bit different than just two Shabbos candles, right? Not everyone can afford high quality oils, but even more than that, when the wealthy Rabbi Tarfun ruled that only olive oil was acceptable, and this is in Mishnah Shabbat, he was actually met with a lot of pushback. And there's a midrash that explains that Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri stood up and two Rabbi Tarfun insisted, what will the people of Babylon do who have nothing but sesame oil? And what will the people of Media do who have nothing but nut oil? And what will the people of Alexandria do who have nothing but radish oil? And said, if you require something of that caliber, for the frequency of bringing Shabbat and spirituality into your home, what will you have done to the people's opportunity? So Rabbi Tarfon's insistence on olive oil would have imposed significant financial hardship for the communities where that oil wasn't readily available. And that would be problematic. Uh, Yes, when I read about radish oil, I was also very curious, Um, right? Like, I I guess you can oil anything. I I don't know. I'm 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 not an oil doctor. I don't know. But... The notion that I referred to, and I want to go back and repeat it again, is these two notions. One is exactly what, Bert, you said earlier, having a high-quality experience for spiritual connection. And the other is a sentence that I'm curious if you've heard before, which is, the Torah is sparing of money of the Jewish people. Have you heard this phrase before? The Torah is sparing of money of the Jewish people. It comes up at several different points in Talmud and Midrash, where it's often pitted against the contrasting principle that there should be no poverty in a place of wealth. On one hand, the Torah does not wish to place an undue financial burden on any of us. And on the other hand, one's actions should not be motivated by a concern for financial cost in a sacred structure. So how do we play those two against each other? On the one hand, we don't want to give burden to anyone because that would reduce their opportunity to connect to the divine. And on the other hand, we don't want people's actions in these moments to be motivated by a concern for financial cost. And that goes in either direction. So what do we do? Be, be the Talmudic thinkers for a minute, and then we'll see if we're on the right track. Anyone can unmute and share. What do we do? We find alternatives. We work as a community. Sadaka. Community, sadaka, alternatives, what else? Keep it going. This is great. We lower the standards to include to be inclusive. Okay. We lower the standards to be inclusive. I don't know if that's, that's lowering the standards, but we wouldn't turn anybody away if they 
could not come up to this to the standard of whatever the membership dues are, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Has anyone heard about the debacle of poultry in Kashrut? I'd imagine the first thing you'd say is you can't milk a chicken. And the second thing I'd say well, back is, according to Robert De Niro and Meet the Parents, you can milk anything, but that's a separate uh, separate conversation for another day. Well, and the debacle is you can't, chickens don't give milk. So why can't you have milk and chicken together? And this, I think, now goes into a connection between what Margot said and what we've already started to discover, what Emma Linda said. And now let's take the second rabbinic tangent of the day. So maybe third, meet the parents, I think counts as a rabbinic tangent. <laughs> so the question is, if birds don't give milk, and it says you can't have the seedling in its mother's milk, what's up with chicken and dairy? And when Rabbi Amy and I had our program a couple of weeks ago, we each shared our philosophical thoughts on kashrut, and those things are very valid. And each one holds merit, Rabbi Amy talking about the origin of the thought and what the, 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 the spirit and ethics of the principle. And I talked more about the modern fluffy version that would help me guide my day-to-day. But this is actually a third part of the conversation. According to the rules of Kashrut given in Torah, it would seem that fowl and land animals are different dietary categories. They literally have different ways of classifying if it's kosher or not. So the idea that they'd be put into one category is literally nonsense infuriation for the first round of looking at it. The idea of separating meat from dairy comes from this prohibition of boiling a kid in its mother's milk. A kid is a land animal. A fowl are ostensibly a different category. So why? Why are the rabbis anti-Caesar salad? right? Why do they have a problem with having cheese with chicken? And there's this professor, uh, David Kramer out of the JTS, who actually has a really nice way of looking at it. Um, And I was reading just some different uh, pieces about how the history of fowl in Kashrut goes to another Mishnah, Tractate Hulin. There's two options, opinions that are presented. Rabbi Akiva posits that separating fowl from dairy is a rabbinic prohibition. It was done for the time of the rabbis. And counting Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yossi Hagalili, who has no problem at all with chicken parmesan. And in a time of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yossi's position was actually the norm. At the time that Mishnah was written, it is likely that people weren't separating their chicken and their cheese. Here's the wonderful part. What started to happen was the prohibition in about the 15th century against bird and dairy, and was codified in the Shulchan Aruch, which is a much later piece of writing that stipulates this uh, prohibition is rabbinic and not from Torah. And Kramer thinks the rabbis decided to classify fowl as meat because of sociological needs and economic needs at the time. In the ancient world, I don't know who knows this, but meat was relatively rare. You didn't have freezers. You couldn't have a stockpile. It was a process. If you were going to have meat, there was a lot of effort that was going into that specific day. You couldn't even buy it the day before. So to have meat was a special occasion. And for more common special occasions like Shabbat, they basically created this classification of smaller meat, easier to purchase, less to cook. And those smaller meat was typically fowl. So because people simply thought of the, uh, 
and, and spoke of foul as meat at the time because the way the markets were working and because of the way they understood it. I mean, maybe they didn't understand protein in full, but they understood that there was a lot of similarity and they basically sold this as a lesser meat. And so the rabbis recategorized it as meat because had they stuck to the principle of having to have meat on Shabbat, which is a mitzvah for elevating Shabbat and to feel like royalty and special and the wealthy, they would have been economically boxing everyone out because you could barely afford to get meat on the specialist of occasions. If you had to do that every Friday night, you would have been bankrupt. So essentially, the rabbis reclassify animals altogether in order to create a socioeconomic space where what? Finance didn't have to be considered when it came to people deciding to engage in the text. But not fish. But not fish. But you want to know why? Is fish expensive or is fish cheap? Depends on where you are. Correct. If you're in a coastal city, it might be less expensive. But the problem was overall, the areas the rabbis are now working in as they're forming these laws in this thousand years is not uh, super accessible to the fish. And a lot of the cheapest fish that was being brought into the ports wasn't the fish that we're allowed to eat. Those fish don't live so close, right? You had to go pretty far out. It was a process to collect that that. Uh, that protein. And so fish didn't get qualified in this sense because it was actually less accessible for a lot of the groups that were around at the time the rabbis are reclassifying this. But I want to reiterate, I find this mind-blowingly inspirational that the same group of people that sometimes we read one of their laws and say, what in the world are you thinking that rule is every ism and ist that you can think of. It's racist and sexist and all. I mean, there's, there's rules in there that we're like, okay, let's skip over that one. This is the same group. And yet when you pull it all the way back, they were willing to reorient logic in order to not create a level of shame and disappointment for the mass. They were willing to reorient reality. They called poultry meat. They know it's not meat. They know they can't milk a chicken. They were willing to say it doesn't matter for the well-being and the spiritual connection that the people can have if we just make this small adjustment. It's a really important lesson that today's rabbis wrestle with, which is, are there small adjustments that will massively enhance? You're on one right now. When the pandemic began, let me tell you how many rabbis were uncomfortable with a camera. The idea that Shabbat could be done of all things, massive levels of electricity being used, but it literally unlocked the ability to spiritually connect during the beginning lockdowns. And so we have always, Barry, that's a good point. We wrestle with nature itself. We have always had the ability to say we can bend the laws of reality if it comes to the spiritual well-being of our people. That's powerful. That's something that, for me, only further pushes me down the line of kashrut. That now, every time I eat, I can also be reminded that there are moments in which we take a stand for how we see the world based on what it will do for the well-being of others around us. There is a, a group that is, um, through KI, working to help resettle two Afghan families. And one of the biggest conversations, I got to eavesdrop on their conversation yesterday, it was really beautiful, is wrestling with, are the things we're doing 
even if incredibly helpful, might they belittle these people? Might they make the refugee families that we want to give the best foot forward, might it make them feel lesser? And how can we provide without infantilizing? That's the same notion here. It's making sure that we give people the opportunity to have the connection and the experience and the authentic truth while also providing them what they need. And and the fact that our welcome circles are at that point in the conversation, that's living out Torah. It's more than just providing. It's providing in a way that elevates and enriches. That's a difficult, tricky, complicated thing, and they're getting it. And I, I, I I was moved to just be on the Zoom, eavesdropping on that piece of conversation. So now take this chicken meat theory and put it back into what we're talking about. The Talmud cites both principles that we talked about, both the Torah does not wish to place an undue burden and money should not be a motivating concern when it comes to the sacred experience. They pin these two in discussion of how the priest figured out how much oil was necessary to keep the menorah burning. Now, according to one opinion, the priest initially used far more oil than was necessary to burn. And then each day they decreased the quantity by a small amount until the night that it lasted only until dawn. But according to the second opinion, they initially used a very small amount of oil and they gradually increased it until the menorah remained lit all night. Those who hold the first opinion maintain that there should be no poverty in a place of wealth. Start with the amount you need and okay, you waste a little oil rather than being stingy trying to use each drop. And those who hold the second opinion argue the Torah is sparing of money of the Jewish people and therefore the priest had to try to minimize the expense along the experimentation, getting them up to a space of ritual uh, balance. Makes some sense, right? Do we want to start with an abundance and then know that like once we get to the right number, we'll stop wasting? Or do we want to start with less and add a little bit along the way? And mind you, they didn't say which one was right. They said the, the, the priest's logic followed one of the two principles. Which one makes more sense to you? I have a couple of comments. Great. Uh, one, the act of giving charity and having the people feel bad about receiving it is also true with disability. That you have people who are, say, in a wheelchair and you keep offering to help them. Sometimes they say yes, but many times they say Stop making me even more disabled by offering that help. So that's uh, one point. Uh, the other that I wanted to make, uh, oh, I, I, it's a question, really. Uh, I grew up poor and had chicken, boiled chicken, every Friday night for however many years I lived at home. And I would like to ask if you who grew up uh, wealthy, whether you had meat or chicken as the traditional Friday night dinner. I'm going to make a guess and then people can tell me if I'm wrong. Ready for the guess? Once this thing solidified, chicken became the flavor of Shabbat. 
maybe you had meat for a high holiday, but chicken, and not even one kind of chicken. I was thinking about this recently. Sometimes we'd get chicken three ways, right? You'd have chicken in your chicken noodle soup. You'd have chicken in your like uh, uh, whatever chicken main dish. And then there was schmaltz and whatever else they were cooking. There was literally as much chicken as possible packed into a meal in a traditional Ashkenazic home. Now, this is specifically an Ashkenazic question, to be perfectly frank. Um, but I actually think that once the Shulchan Aruch compacted that, George, actually, that was the beauty of it. No longer did did finances really actually dictate the the product used on Shabbat. Now, the meals were certainly, I'm sure, different fanciness levels. But chicken noodle soup became something. I mean, the reason you did chicken noodle soup was you could still use the chicken for something else. You use the chicken to make the soup, then you eat the chicken to eat it. And that became something that the wealthiest also were doing because it became the flavor of Shabbat. Does that seem right? Or am I just totally out of step here? I was going to say, I don't know if you're out of step, but my mother was a rebel against her kosher parents. And so she used to make a pork roast every Friday. I was going to say lobster, but pork roast. Okay. <laughs> no, it's pork roast every Friday. But she the didn't other serve white milk. Yeah. She didn't serve it with milk. <laughs> she had her standards. That, that was a curveball I wasn't expecting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Any other? Who, who had chicken on Friday nights? Um, my husband told me that uh, they would have boiled chicken and when he lived with his grandparents and they would have boiled chicken and then the, I guess the water would become chicken soup. And then of course, like you said, chicken three ways. I, I did not grow up poor, but my parents grew up well, my mother grew up poor, and she was determined that we would have steak every night. So it was never a chicken thing in my house. But, um, but I will tell you that she never would serve any pasta. And I thought it was an Italian delicacy that we could not afford. So when I moved out at 17, I, I went to the market and I called my sister and said, you know, from my landline in those days, uh, and said, you will not believe that spaghetti is so cheap. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) So, um, So we grew up the opposite, but just goes to show you. I don't know. I have a a question for everybody who's calling boiled chicken, boiled chicken. When my bubby made it and my father loved it, it was Kedemta chicken. Did anybody, has anybody heard that? Kedemta? Huh. (laughs) What does that word mean in Yiddish? (laughs) To me, it meant boiled. But I also found out that my father would make up words that I thought were Yiddish, but were just my father's made up words that sounded very Yiddish. So Kedemta could have been, and, and that he fondly remembered because they grew up very poor, that they would go on picnics and my bubby would make the Kedemta chicken in the pot, bring the pot on the picnic. That was the picnic meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, to go off on that tangent a little bit, my wife's family calls a remote control the kvetcher. And to this day, I cannot, 
I, I tell them I'm like this, in, unless you were sitting there whining about what's not on TV, it makes absolutely no sense to me. But in their family, the whole family calls the remote control Kvetcher. And so like, and her friends called Kvetcher because they grew up around her family. So it's, it's uh, what, what, the, the things that get solidified in our family heritage is uh, very interesting. Rabbi, I don't know from Yiddish that much because my mother and my aunt made up their own uh, language so they could understand each other and not many (laughs) other people could understand them, especially me. But condemned, I've heard that word condemned. It's not really, it just means, I think, cook for a long time. It means that you cook everything out of this, like, the chicken. You, you, you got every last step of nutrient out of it. You get the most flavor. <laughs> I think we got to Google that. <laughs> and when I was uh, first due at 18, I was told that you eat chicken on Friday night. And I've kept that. I, I love chicken on Friday night. It has become a tradition just from tradition, not from knowledge. Oh, and it seeps up from everywhere. I'm telling you, I, my wife and I grew up in different like surroundings in that. And like, she insists on this day, like we have chicken on Fridays. And I'm, once in a while, I'm like, you know, we can spice it up. And she's like, we have chicken on Fridays. Like, I don't, I don't even know why you're saying anything about it. So, uh, Mehmet. I, I don't uh, remember. I don't remember exactly what we had on Friday night, but we only had one rule in our house. I have two younger sisters. A, we had to be at Shabbat dinner, and B, we had to wear skirts. Oh. I mean, so I don't, that we were more focused on that, and we'd come to the Shabbat dinner table wearing all sorts of crazy costume things. But, I mean, we had, I'm sure, chicken, but I think we probably had fish and maybe occasionally some meat as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mehmet. I hadn't thought about all that in a long time. Um, I, I happen to speak German, and Kedempfte probably comes from the word gedampft, which means steamed, steam cooked. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's probably somewhere along the lines of cooked with water is probably the like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. so essentially it means something like boiled. I, probably chicken uh, multiple ways. You could steam, you could boil, you could poach. I mean, today the opportunities are endless, but I, I want to redirect us only because I would love to hear everyone's favorite Shabbat recipe, but I think we have a class to finish. Um, so I'm going to redirect us. There is another piece that I want to keep looking at. So the, 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 the priests show us that there's two different ways to do this. You could have started with too much oil and, and, and gone down or started with not enough and gone up. And by the way, there are tensions to recognize in both. If you start with too much and work backwards, you know that you are wasting some of the oil that's sacred. And if you start with not enough and build up, you know that you're not completing the mitzvah each time you didn't get it right. So it's not to say that either of these ideas were lived without tension. The reality is in any exploration that we do, we are probably holding a certain level of tension, of of wrestling with it. And that's okay. And so now go all the way to the 1900s, Rabbi Baruch Epstein, the Torah to Mima. And his commentary on our Parsha, he attempts to reconcile these two different principles. And he explains that when it came to communal contributions, like the oil of the menorah, the goal was to give lavishly and generously, using the highest quality as it befits a place of wealth like the Mishkan. 
But when it came to private contributions like a grain offering or Shabbat candles, the Torah did not want to tax anyone financially and thus lowered the quality of oil was for perfect. It was perfectly acceptable. So what they're saying here is there's actually another defining factor, the communal versus the individual. KI is a beautiful space and there is a do that comes to be in that space. But those dues are also based at some point, if the conversation comes through, people have conversation of need. And one of the things that conver- that's always been around in community is that the reason you beautify a communal space is that every member of the community has opportunity to hold on with pride to its beauty, to its elegance to its lavishness. It actually gives a tangible connection so that someone who doesn't have the same ability to afford that same level of lavish at home, they have the pride of their community center. That when we ask that there be a a more expensive, lavish thing that goes into the community, that's actually because of the idea that if everyone gives a little, we can get to lavish. I mean, there's a, a, a theory that Jewish people created the microloan. So does anyone here, does anyone here know, does anyone not know what a microloan is, right? I'll say it because I always forget it's on a podcast. Anyways, a microloan is when multiple members of a community will give five bucks. And if a hundred people give five bucks, how much do we have now? 500 bucks. And it was actually, there's proof that in the Over the course of time, as Jews were in diasporas in different spaces, especially when they were in the most uh, poverty-ridden socioeconomic spaces, they created microloan systems to slowly and surely enhance everyone's experience. 20 people would each put in five bucks. Suddenly, every month, suddenly there's a hundred bucks. When the baker's oven breaks, he can fix it that month. Next month, the shoe repair guy needs something the month after that. And each month, someone got $100. And that $100 was the equivalent of someone got thousands of dollars and could really enhance their business. And over the course of a year, everyone in the group would get a loan that would enhance their experience. And everyone only put in five bucks a month. With no interest. There, were, there was, it, it wasn't even really a loan. Right. Everyone put in $5 a month. Someone got the money that month. By the way, Daniel, that is also the the same thing that happens in Latin American cultures. I've asked how come the village is so poor and the church is so rich. They feel the same way. They have nothing individually, but if everybody contributes to their church, they have one thing they can go with pride as a community and say, we have this. That makes sense in the Jewish world and in the Catholic world. But part of, the dif- part of the difference is that in the Jewish communities, all the money didn't go to build a beautiful synagogue. While That's true. But Ooh. some did. But some did. Right. And, and by the way, a lot of the reason that those Jewish community centers weren't quite as lavish as you see a lot of the churches as you go through uh, lower socioeconomic areas in, in South America and beyond, and there's a little bit of distribution. Yeah, there's a little bit of distribution of, of wealth differences there. Yes. And, um, but, but the notion actually remains the same. But when right. these Jewish families first created these like microloans for each other, that, which are, I think, the baseline of the microloan system today in a lot of ways, these community loans, what they were doing was they literally 
were ignoring the obstacles that were being put in front of them. The banks wouldn't loan them money. So they loaned each other money. And they didn't say, oh my God, how can I afford that? They broke it down. 20 people give five bucks, that's $100. And if everyone knows at some point in the year, they're gonna get some help, five bucks a month to be in a club is pretty good. They created a system that was not taxing for them. And they did it in such a way that the whole community was gonna benefit. And so the rabbis here are saying, that's what we've always done. The oil needed to be the purest for the menorah because that was a space for everyone to engage with the divine. So we can afford in a little bits to get up to the quality that's needed for the community. But in your own experience, when you're bringing your grain offering to God, God doesn't want finance to be an obstacle in that offering. So this actually allows us to live out both principles. We use the lavish, beautiful things to ceremonially show our connection to the divine in a way through community that alleviates financial burden. And when it's for you yourself, God doesn't need anything flashy. God needs the effort. Don't have an animal, collect the grain. Don't have the right oil, get the oil that you need. Like it's about the effort and the love and the intention behind it that actually gets there. In our own day, we aspire for our public religious institutions to be as beautiful as possible. And those who can contribute towards making the synagogue more beautiful are encouraged to do so. And we have wonderful donors who step up and make this a gorgeous space to celebrate Judaism. But when it comes to religious options in your home, you've never heard us be like, you really need to get that set of candlesticks. You get what is elevating to you, but you feel no obligation to spend in excess at all. Not everyone has the fanciest Shabbat candlesticks or table or anything else, but the light of our communal institutions, they burn bright and beautiful and they illuminate out of here and into all of our homes. So many of you said when we had Zoom high holidays that you shared the link, you went through the system and people thought, wow, what a magnificent space. People have come here for B'nai Mitzvah and celebrations and said, wow, because we make the space beautiful out of pride for community. But we will never dictate that in order to be individually connected to something more spiritual and divine, that you ever need to reach that level. That's why the institution is here, that both these laws remain very true. It all is depending on context. Any thoughts or considerations before we turn to the blessing of Torah? I was going to say one of the, you know, when you talked about uh, contributing for the communal good uh, without getting deep into this conversation, that that's related to why it's moral to wear masks. That one is, one is contributing to the communal good and one is getting back from it the fact that one is not getting COVID from somebody else. And we live. And sometimes in, it's burdensome. Yeah. And, and we, we, we live in a time when the individual has become the thing that people worship and the idea of contributing to the community for communal good uh, somehow is on the the, the wane, uh, not for everybody, but certainly for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes I equate it to, you can see the people who stop and pick up trash and the ones that walk right by. And I'm not saying that I stop every single time, but it's about beautifying the space that we're all living in. I think that these things, uh, this 
lesson can ripple into a lot of different aspects and views of our life. Uh, it's an illustration to me, uh, especially with how much jumping around we did it. And Bert, I can try to list all of those different uh, uh, pieces of, of text. We had to jump around a lot. We had to span over a thousand years to really get to some of the core of this. But that's that's the beauty. And so when we stay this blessing of studying Torah, I want to remind us that this is what we study is that this is a living tradition that's vibrant and changes and is willing to shift reality for the greater good, making a chicken meat for the greater good of people being able to engage in our tradition. So we say together, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav Mitzivanu Asok B'Divrei Torah. That we have the opportunity to wrestle, to engage, to discover all this beauty of Torah.